Amen. Happy Independence Day. So grateful for our freedom. This morning the worship team prayed and we just thanked God that we can gather freely in worship. That's so many people around the world cannot do what we are doing now. I do not take it for granted. We have been praying for something as a congregation every day. We've been praying, Lord, give us the desire to pray and teach us to pray. Why are we praying for this? Pop quiz. (laughs) We looked at the early church, right? And what happened when they pray? Well, they, the scripture says they gathered daily and prayed constantly together. And when they did that, miracles happened. Amen. Their lives were transformed and their world was transformed. And we realized that, man, gathering constantly together in prayer is a tall order. So maybe we need to grow in our ability to pray a little bit. And so that's why we started praying. God, give us the desire to pray and teach us to pray. And we've been studying the Lord's Prayer because that's the prayer Jesus taught his disciples when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. I'll get there in a little bit, but I'm going to let you get a head start on me, okay? While you're turning to 1 Kings chapter 17, I'm going to do a recap. The Lord's Prayer, the first part... Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. It's designed to help us better understand the God we are praying to. That he's our heavenly Father who loves us and is holy. And we've talked about how God's holiness is based on the fact that he's triune, he's trinity. He exists as this love relationship between three people. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they always continuously honor and serve and exalt one another. They live in this love relationship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is no one like our God. And it's out of this love that he creates us and that he rules and he reigns over us. So the second part of the Lord's Prayer is a response to that. Once we understand that God is good and that He loves us and that He reigns over us in love, the response is to submit to Him. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We understand that God is trustworthy. He's good. And we're not. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says it this way. He says, the good I want to do, I do not do. And the evil I don't want to do, this is what I keep doing. We understand that we are inclined to make a mess of our lives. But God knows what he's doing. So we submit to him, your kingdom come, your will be done. In us, on earth, here, as it is in heaven. And when we pray that... And we surrender to God's will. Something miraculous happens. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us and begins to heal us 
by producing the character of God in us. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the character traits God enjoys as Trinity in the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what the Spirit begins to produce in us. God heals us of our selfishness and our sin by turning our focus outward. That fruit, that love and joy and peace and self-control is not just to heal us. It's also to flow out of us to heal the people around us. One of the character traits that God has, that his spirit begins to produce in us, is empathy and compassion. And the spirit begins to plant a little dream in us of how we can bless others. You see, God is very passionate about this world. He loves this world and he is passionate about restoring and saving it. And let's face it, it needs that, right? I mean, yeah, we talked about that last week. I mean, violence, poverty, racism, sexism, environmental concerns, there's droughts going on, there's food shortages. I mean, you just name it, the list goes on, right? And if we look at all those problems, they're overwhelming to us, but they're not overwhelming to God. And he has plans and dreams to heal this world. And he's looking for people who are passionate about him and the dreams he's given them to bring his kingdom to their little corner of earth. Check out what Second Chronicles 16.9 says. I think we have a slide for this one. There it is. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro over the earth, looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is looking. He's looking for the people who have submitted to him, who are saying, God, your kingdom come. Yes, Lord, come. And when you pray that God sees you and he signs you up for faith strength training, Did you see that? Looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. There are some preachers that will say, if you follow Jesus, you know, he'll just fix all your problems and all your dreams will come true. No. (laughs) That will come eventually. And it's wonderfully sweet when it does. But the first thing that happens when you follow Jesus is you get signed up for faith strength training. You see, faith is like a muscle. And when we first come to Jesus and accept him as our Lord, we have these itty-bitty little faith muscles. Except we don't know that they're tiny. You know, we're just these little kids. We've gotten adopted into God's family and we look at Jesus and we're like, man, he, he conquered sin and conquered death and the same spirit that rose him from the dead lives in me now. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah! It's so true. The problem is we're just little munchkins. You know what this looks like. 
Little six-year-olds with toothpick arms flexing their muscles. That's what we're like. Somewhere there's a picture of me with this like long frizzy ponytail and a football jersey that comes down to my knees. And I've got a purple mouth guard (laughs) going, it is sad. It is just sad. And God sees us and chuckles and says, come here, kid. Let me show you how to strengthen those muscles. And he signs us up for faith strength training. What does this look like? Faith strength training. Give us this day our daily bread. It looks like depending on God every single day for your basic needs. Not knowing how those needs are going to get met tomorrow, but just depending on him for today. And in this midst of this survival where you have to depend more and more on him because your sources of strength and security have been stripped away, it's not just becoming focused on yourself and, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? It's also growing in empathy for others. Give us this day our daily bread. I know no better story to illustrate this principle than the story of Elijah and the widow in 1 Kings chapter 17. So let's read. Starting in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead. I'm just going to pause right there. If you're not familiar with who Elijah is, that's okay. Because this is the first time... The Bible introduces him. So no one hearing the Bible story would have known who he was by the, at this point. And it's very interesting because usually when the Bible introduces us to a new character, they give us somewhat of a family genealogy. Like Abishai, the brother of Joab, whose mother was Zariah. You know, we get that sort of thing. We don't get any of that with Elijah. Which may be the point. It's kind of like saying Elijah, the son of no one. From t- the Tishbite, from Tishbit, or however you say it. There is no other record in scripture or in ancient archaeology or in any ancient document of a people called Tishbites or the place Tishba. Even in Jesus' time, Jewish historians were trying to debate where Elijah came from. They didn't know. Nobody knew. This is like saying, now Elijah, a nobody with no family who is from nowhere and temporarily living in Gilead. (laughs) He says to Ahab, now Ahab we know about. Ahab was famous. He's introduced in the previous chapter. Ahab was a son of Omri, Israel's most successful uh, commander. And he won the hearts of the people. He built the capital city in Samaria and became king. And so Ahab grew up a prince with this plush life. He married a foreign princess, Jezebel, from Sidon. And he inherited the throne. He didn't have to fight for it. He didn't really like getting his hands dirty. But Jezebel did not mind. 
And they kind of had this arrangement where anyone who opposed or disagreed with Ahab, Jezebel would just have them knocked off. And in return, Ahab let Jezebel do whatever she wanted. And what Jezebel wanted was to convert Israel to the worship of her god, Baal. And she would have killed anyone who would not convert. And so at this point, there's all kinds of people in hiding. It's religious genocide, not religious freedom. And Ahab is letting Jezebel do it. Which is why in the previous chapter, the Bible introduces Ahab this way. It says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him. That's Ahab. So you have Elijah, a nobody from nowhere, coming up against the most ruthless king Israel has ever known. And this is what he says. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. Boom. How you like them apples? Now, why no rain? Well, Baal was a fertility god in charge of sending the rain so that crops would grow. So Elijah is challenging Jezebel's god, Baal. And Baal worship included temple prostitution, usually with people who were enslaved, include priests who would cut themselves, sometimes included child sacrifice. And anyone who would not convert to this type of worship was being killed. It's no wonder Elijah hated it. The interesting thing is, there's no sign that God sent Elijah to do this. Every other time in scripture where a prophet comes forward, we have some record of God like speaking to the prophet in a vision or otherwise and sending them. And then the prophet comes forward and says, thus says the Lord. That's not what is happening here. We have no record that God sent Elijah to do this. And he doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, there will be no rain until I say so. This is not exactly the approach of a mature prophet of God. If you think at this point in the story, Elijah is, you know, some faith giant with just these spiritually ripped faith muscles. He's not. He's a scrawny little kid with no family from nowhere with something to prove. And so he picks a fight with the biggest bully. And almost gets himself killed. How do we know this? Because in the very next verse, what does it say? It says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Run. <laughs> Go hide. You are not prepared for this fight. 
He's not like Moses. He doesn't have miracles and signs to back him up. God says, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens there to feed you. Elijah's like this dedicated little bat boy. And he sees the opposing pitcher just keep beaning his players over and over again. And he can't stand it. And so he decides to charge the mound. And he gets there and takes his best swing right as his coach pulls him by the collar and yanks him back and says, Get back to the dugout before you get yourself clobbered. That's what's happening here. God sees that Elijah is very passionate about him and he sees past the recklessness. So he signs Elijah up for faith strength training by sending him to the desert. Which is where God sends about 70% of the people in the Bible to for their faith strength training. I don't know if you've realized this pattern yet. The other 30% go to prison. You know, that's essentially the same metaphor. And a good indication of how fun faith strength training is. So he goes into the desert and he has to drink water from a brook and ravens bring him food. Which sounds really cool. Unless you're the one depending on birds to bring you food. You know? I wonder how many times he's stressed about whether or not they come back. He has no control over what he eats, when he eats. I wonder, you know, and how often he had to try to convert, like coerce the ravens to drop the food, like your dog, you know, with a favorite slipper that it doesn't want to let go of. You know, and he's like, okay, just, all right, good, you've landed. Just put it down. Just put it down. Okay, I'm going to come get it now. And, oh, and then it flies away and he's like, ah. You know, I bet the Ravens thought it was a horribly fun game. And when was the last time an animal brought you something in its mouth that you wanted to swallow? And then the brook dries up. Verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Brooks don't dry up overnight. This was gradual. Elijah wakes up one morning, goes to get a drink, and he's like, wait a minute. Is that lower than it was before? And it's this gnawing feeling that just grows in him day after day, week after week, as he sees that water level getting lower and lower and lower. It's like when you've fallen on hard times and you see your bank account just get lower and lower and lower. As you age, your physical stamina, you just kind of watch it, right? Sometimes it's the love in our relationships. We just kind of watch it. Being drained of the things we've always relied on isn't fun. The things that make us feel strong and secure. 
But when God removes those things, it causes us instead to rely on him and his power that never fails and never falls short and his power that can do immeasurably more than all you could ask for or imagine. God strips Elijah of all self-reliance. He has to depend on God for his most basic needs, food, shelter, relational connection. He's alone except for the birds. In June of 1998, I arrived in Tallahassee, Florida to do a seven-month internship at a megachurch. Now, the previous two years, I was at college and had pretty much dedicated them to building up my boyfriend who my life kind of revolved around. And on the drive down to Florida, I stopped at his house to say goodbye and learned that he had replaced me. And so I arrived in Tallahassee in shock and feeling utterly alone. It didn't help that everyone called me Anki. (laughs) And I would lay be, sorry, I would kneel beside my bed at night and I would just pray, you know, God, if I don't wake up in the morning, I'm okay with that. And every morning I would wake up and there would be this little gecko that was clinging to my window, just looking at me. And I would get ready, and when I would leave for the day, he would climb down and disappear. And at night, I would kneel beside my bed and once again pray, God, I'm okay. If I get in a car accident tomorrow morning or if I don't wake up. And that little gecko would climb right back up on that screen and look at me. And this went on day after day for months. And I began to realize God was sending that little gecko to let me know I wasn't alone. Just like God sent the ravens every morning, every evening to Elijah to let him know he wasn't alone. God will lead us into times of deep loneliness. So that we draw closer to him. To develop our friendship and intimacy with him. He will lead us into times of financial and physical hardship. So that we learn to depend, depend on him and get our strength from him. After we say yes, God enrolls us in faith strength training. Where step one is usually for him to remove the unreliable things we depend on. That's step one. The things that we think make us strong and secure. And it's different for different people. For some people, it's a job or finances. Other people, it may be their intellect or some ability. For some people, it's unhealthy relationships or social status. But God will begin stripping these things away. And when he does, it's scary. And we only have two choices. We can continue on in our faith journey or we can give up on it. 
And if we continue on in our faith journey, God hooks us up to like this faith ventilator. (sighs) Which seems really unnatural at first. It seems like we're just barely getting through each day. We just barely have enough emotional strength to get through the day. We have just barely enough resources to last one more day. When Eric and I first started planting the church in Mason, we didn't know where the money was going to come from. It would come from people, some of whom were you, just sending random checks in the mail. And we didn't know when the checks were coming, how much they would be for, who they would be from. And not having a regular paycheck freaked me out. I would walk to the mailbox every day and just pray. And if we went several days and there no checks had come, my hair would be like falling out. My hair was falling out like a molting, you know. Fast forward five years later into our church plant journey. We went two and a half months with no pay. And I was okay. I mean, I would rather been paid, but my hair wasn't falling out. I had two job offers that I passed on during that time. Because I knew that I knew that I knew I was doing what God wanted me to do and he would provide. And he did. He provided enough for us to continue and for back pay eventually. He was faithful. What first seems like breathing off a ventilator in time becomes an incredible source of peace and strength and freedom. Step one of God's faith training program is having your false sense of security stripped away so you get your strength from God instead. Step two is growing in empathy. Let's look at verse 7. Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. Now this is interesting. Who's from Sidon? Jezebel. Who is the god of Sidon? Baal. Uh Uh-huh. Go to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and please bring me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, your God, not my God, your God. She doesn't worship the Lord God of Israel. Who does she worship? Most likely Baal. And to top it off, she's a widow. How did widows support themselves in those days? There's usually only one occupation available to them. As 
As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. I don't know if that's a statement of faith or if that's a statement of sarcasm because everybody knows who Elijah is at this point in time. But she is connecting the famine with the God of Israel. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. This widow has been in her own faith training program. Her husband has died. We don't know why. Might have been because of the famine. And she has watched her resources get lower and lower. And now she is on her very last meal. She's going to break some, bake up some bread and then die with her son. That's literally her plan for the day. And Elijah says, hey, give me the last bit of your bread instead. And I'll make sure your bread never runs out. And she looks at him. And she does it. Why? Because she's desperate. She's going to die anyways. Why not take a sip from the faith ventilator? So she bakes the last of her flour and bread or flour and oil into some bread for Elijah. She gives it to him. And lo and behold, there's a little left. And so she bakes some bread for herself and her son. And this continues day after day for about two years. But in time, her son starts to get sick. And he gets sicker and sicker until he dies. And the woman looks at Elijah in verse 18. And she says, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Why would she say that to him? I mean, isn't he the reason that their flour and oil don't run out? Why would she accuse him of that? Maybe because he had come and reminded all Israel of their sin and condemned them all to die by starvation until he decided they had suffered enough. You know, because it's not going to rain until he says so. What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? The widow's words ripped through him. Doubt. Did God really want me to do this? Is this really the right thing? There will come a point in every believer's faith journey where you get to a place where you look around and you don't know how you got there. It's not what you imagined. And you don't know who to blame. You don't know if God set you up to fail or if you just misunderstood his guidance. Elijah carries that boy up to his room and he cries out to God. 
Oh, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon the widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Also, did you catch that? Did you bring tragedy also? Elijah's not just thinking about that boy. He's thinking about everyone who has died. He's having a crisis of faith. He needs to know that he's not responsible for bringing death to everybody around him. Verse 21, then he stretched himself out over the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let the boy's life return to him. And God answered his prayer. Life came back to the boy. And Elijah scoops him up, runs down the stairs and hands him to his mom and says, see, your son is alive. And she said, now I know that you're a man of God and your claim to speak God's word is true. And Elijah knew it too. God did send me. I'm not crazy. He is going to pull us through. And he knew it not because the widow said it. He knew it because he got a miracle from God. During our faith training, God will allow us to get pounded with doubt until the point where we cry out for him asking for a miracle. Demanding a sign that he's still there, he's still good, and we're not crazy. That we didn't get this whole dream thing wrong. Why does God bring us to this point? It's so that we learn to get our affirmation from him and not from the people and circumstances around us. When Elijah looks around him, everything and everyone is indicating that he is a colossal failure. Only in a miracle will show him that he's not. And learning to get your sense of affirmation and your sense of purpose from God instead of your circumstances, it builds your faith muscles. So step one of the faith training is God, he strips away the unreliable things you depend on so you begin to rely on him. Step two is he teaches you empathy. Did God teach empathy about Baal, to Elijah about Baal worshipers? Yeah, I think he did. Step three is to learn to get our affirmation from God and read the signs he's given us instead of getting our affirmation from our circumstances. And now Elijah knows. He knows how to listen to God. He knows how to receive strength from God. He knows how to empathize with others. And God finally says, okay, you're ready. And God sends him back. If you read ahead in the next chapter, God sends him back to meet King Ahab. And now Elijah has a plan to prove that God is the one true God and not Baal that doesn't involve getting everyone killed. 
meets Ahab, who immediately throws the accusation of death monger back in Elijah's face. But Elijah's seen this curveball before, and he knows how to respond. And he says, it's not me who's made trouble for Israel, but you and your family. And from here on out, the story gets very exciting. And this is the part that preachers and Sunday school teachers always skip ahead to. Because this is the part where Elijah's dream comes true. He challenges the prophets of Baal to head-to-head competition. A whole nation of Israel comes out to watch. All day long, the prophets of Baal cry out to him, asking him to light a fire. They dance, they sing. They work themselves up into a frenzy. They cut themselves. Their blood is flowing. Nothing. At the end of the day, it's Elijah's turn. One little prayer and boom, fire falls from heaven. And all the people are like, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You know, it's like an instant nationwide revival. Elijah prays seven times. God brings rain. It's awesome. When our faith dreams come true, it's amazing. And it always blesses far more people than just us. But today I wanted to speak to those of you whose dreams, your faith dreams have not come true yet. Who are still in the faith strength training program. That seems too hard and too long. It's worth it. It's worth it. I know what it is when God begins to strip away the things that you depend on. I know how crazy that gets. When you see your brook drying up, the end of your strengths come in, and you don't see anything else. God has got you. He's got you. And he's going to hook you up to that faith ventilator that in time will seem more and more natural. And you will begin breathing in joy and peace and strength that is beyond any you have ever known before. And you will come to know God, not just as your creator, but as your heavenly father who loves you, the most true friend you could ever have. So if you are at that stage, hang in there. It's worth it. If you are at the stage where you're very zealous about a cause, but having trouble empathizing with others, Please do what Elijah did. Please spend some time with people whose life choices you don't understand. Last week, I mentioned that I'm very happy that Roe versus Wade was overturned because it did not value the lives of unborn children. It just offered them no protection whatsoever. But I also said I'm very sober. Because all laws are flawed 
and offered limited protection. We don't know what's coming next. And I am concerned that what's coming next may not value the lives of women enough. It's estimated one in four women have had an abortion. It's not because one in four women don't care about the lives of children. It's not true. It's because in our society, women and girls are vulnerable and often not equipped to take care of the life that's growing within them. And we need to listen to their stories and understand where they are living from so that we come up with solutions that both honor the lives of women and girls and unborn children. If we don't, we can be like Elijah and in our zealousness for righteousness do more harm than good. So spend some time with the people whose life's choices you don't understand. Let God grow your empathy. If you're at that stage of struggling with self-doubt, where you thought you were following God and yet you've ended up in a place that does not look like what you thought life would be. Please do what Elijah did. He went to his room, shut this door behind him and got down on his knees and he cried out to God for a miracle. Every person who's persevered and grown, grown strong in the faith has stories of miracles. Checks that come in the mail. Broken down cars that start. Panic attacks and addictions that are overcome. Marriages and families that are restored. You may have some of those stories yourselves and you, you've just forgotten about them. But cry out to God for a miracle so you can receive your affirmation from Him and not depend on the circumstances around you. God, give us this day our daily bread. It is a very simple but a very tough prayer. But a very rewarding one as well. And as we pray, we will gain a sense of peace and purpose that is far beyond all we could ask for or imagine. Will you stand and pray with me? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lord, we thank you that you have come to give us freedom. And God, we pray that we 
But even when things get tough, we would hold fast to our faith, remembering that you are good and you do love us and we're not crazy. Help us when we've come to the end of ourselves to depend on you. God, help us to find joy in your provision and strengthen us. Grow us in character that we have a heart for people and that we see people like you do. And give us your creativity and your solutions, God, and not our own. We thank you that you always make a way forward. I think of Jesus dead in the grave for three days. Seemed like all hope was lost. But it's not. The story does not end there. And the story does not end with ourselves when we run out of every possibility we know of. With you, there is always hope. There is always a way forward. Your ways are not our ways. Your ways are higher than our ways, God. And we we pray that we will trust you and surrender to your ways. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in us, God, and on this earth, because we all need more of you. And God, give us this day whatever it is that we need. And help us look not only to our own interests and our own needs, but also to the needs of one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.